0: RNMD is a show about hospital relationships from the perspective of doctors and nurses. You're very smart, and we know that you would never come to a podcast for medical advice. So obviously, call your non-podcasting doctor and nurse team if you need any medical care. Oh, and we should also mention that we don't represent any hospital at all. Okay, start the thing. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of RNMD, a show about doctors and nurses working together in this mad world of medicine. Today my guest is Dr. Matt Suba. He is a intensivist. He is a critical care attending working at Cleveland Clinic. He specializes in severe forms of respiratory failure like ARDS. He is also the director of the fellowship program at Cleveland Clinic for critical care. He is a senior editor and regular content contributor for criticalcarenow.com, and he focuses on mechanical ventilation, respiratory care, and airway management. He is a brilliant doctor. I did not give him a heads up of really what we were going to talk about. He posted something asking when COVID first started, we all felt like we were intubating too early because it wasn't working. And now he he said he felt like maybe we're intubating too late. And where's the sweet spot? And that really spoke to me. I told him that's what I wanted to talk about. And I brought all my questions and he Answered all of them very thoughtfully, very thoroughly. And he's just a wonderful person to talk to. He has a great perspective. He also has a really good approach to team based care. You really get the impression that he understands how all the pieces of the puzzle need to fit together to create the optimal care for a patient. And he really encourages that. And that's one of the reasons why. I wanted to talk to him. So we are definitely going to have more discussions like this. Um, I'm going to invite him back. Maybe next time we were discussing, maybe he'd come back and we'd talk about shock. So um, if you guys like this episode, please send me an email. Please send us a review. Um, Likes are really important right now as we're getting started. Um, And if you like the medical topics, uh, send me a little DM. Let me know. Um, And you can follow Matt on all platforms at Zen Tensivist, Z-E-N. You can also send me a line RNMD podcast on Instagram is probably the easiest way. Or you can also email me at RNMD podcast at gmail.com. All right, without further ado, here we go. (music) How does it work for you guys? Do you have one ICU or?
1: So we have um, at the main ice at the main campus. So I work in two sites. I work at the main hospital and one of the regional hospitals.
0: Uh-huh. At the
1: main hospital, we have a sixty-four bed ice main uh, medical ICU, but we also attend to board patients in other units, so we can have up to like eighty or so patients on our census.
0: Wow! Um, and amazing.
1: then it is yeah and then in the region uh the hospital that i mainly work at has like 35 or 40 beds uh, across yeah. a couple of units that we staff um yeah. and i am a nocturnist so i only work at night well not only but nearly only work at night so uh i i get to cover all the patients with you know by myself but you know with residents or apps or something but you know
0: that's crazy though
1: yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah so it's it's been it's been uh a, a bit much since like after thanksgiving
0: yeah. You saw like a big wave after Thanksgiving. Yeah. yeah it really, so did we.
1: it really got worse. I think leading up to Christmas, the week of Christmas. Uh, I think now this last week it's probably plateaued or maybe, but it's, it's still, you know, way more than what we're used to seeing in terms of vented COVID patients. So.
0: Right. Yeah. Same for us. And, um, I don't know how it is for you, but they take up so much space, right? When, once they're vented, it's like we yes. have full units of vented COVID patients, and they sit there for so long, and yeah, it's right. just like how do yeah, you they just staff don't move. this? Yeah, yeah, it's crazy.
1: Yeah, especially in one of our one in the regional hospital I work in, the nurses go one to one. They used to go one to one for proning, which didn't really make any sense to me. But um, they don't do that anymore. But they used to go one to one for CRT. Or they sorry, they still go one to one for CRT because they actually run the run it themselves. Right. So that definitely hurts the staffing too. So then I have like tripled nurses in an ICU, and they have three vented patients. I'm like, this is insane.
0: It's insane. You know? Yeah, Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, it's the same problem here. I mean, we, we do that too, uh, CRRT, CVVH, like we, Mm -hmm. we do one-to-one and then, um, but then, yeah, we have, I mean, you have to do what you have to do. Right. And then we still have patients downstairs that need to come up urgently. And you're just like, now what? Yeah, (laughs) it's so bad. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, okay. So, I just wanted. I made a little note here. Mm-hmm. I I saw your post, um, and it said I have yet to intubate a COVID patient with a prolong with prolonged time seven to fourteen days of high FiO two high flow nasal cannula or. Uh, CPAP, BiPAP with initial driving pressure less than 20, despite low tidal volume and optimized PEEP. There was definitely a too early intubation and now often it feels too late. Can you, can you explain that?
1: Yeah. So I think at the beginning of the pandemic, like March, April, uh, there was this tendency to try to follow the guidance that we got from people who had seen the pandemic before us in Asia and Europe. And a lot of the guidance said, If they're on more than six liters nasal cannula, you probably should just intubate them because they're going to crash and it's going to be safer for everybody that way and all this. And so that was what kind of happened in the beginning of the pandemic, which was super frustrating because we never used to manage hypoxemic respiratory failure that way. It wasn't like, oh, you're on more than six liters you need an endotracheal tube. Um, (laughs) So that was like mind boggling to most of us who are used to taking care of ARDS patients. So at that point, there was a big pushback against that, which I think was really appropriate because like, why would you, you know, it was a situation and there was a quote in the New York Times by a, uh, an ED physician that worked in New York actually uh, at the time who said, how ridiculous does it feel to walk up to a patient and tell them to put down their cell phone so I can intubate you? Like right. that doesn't, that's something we would have never done before. Right. Um, so, so that I think was a kind of a silly practice and I'm glad we got away from it. Some of it I understand was people were concerned about aerosol exposure with high-flow nasal cannula or with non-invasive ventilation. Um, so I, I, I can see where that came from. Fortunately, a lot of the concern about aerosols has since been you know, at least minimized, if not debunked. I mean, we're worried about people on 30 to 60 liters high-flow nasal cannula causing aerosols, not taking into account that a patient on six liters nasal cannula could cough, which would generate several hundred liters of flow and be more, much more likely to aerosolize. So it really didn't really make any worldly sense Sense. to to do that. So now, especially now that we have a larger sort of cohort of COVID patients, more people taking care of ARDS than they've ever taken care of before. Now we're kind of, I think, probably reaching the other end of the spectrum where people will stay on high flow or on, uh, or I think worse on non-invasive for two weeks and then they get worse and then they get intubated. And that patient is much more difficult to manage on the ventilator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so the question becomes then, where do we draw the line? What's, what's the appropriate uh, time to pull the trigger? I'll tell you that I don't know the answer. Um, too early is definitely not the right approach because you're going to intubate people who don't need it. Too late is what some of these feel like. Um, there must be a sweet spot in the middle. Um, and I think there are some ways that we could try to identify that or at least try to prevent prevent or recognize failure of high floor and non-invasive that we're not probably doing adequately.
0: Um, yeah, I totally agree. Um, I had a patient recently, I mean, I've, I've been off for a few weeks, you know, but, um, I had a patient recently that it was just don't intubate, don't intubate, don't intubate. The guy was so, he's uncomfortable, he's ripping off the BiPAP, he won't stay prone, he's agitated. And then, you know, unfortunately, the nurse, it wasn't my patient, the nurse that has that patient has to go in and out in and out of that room. And then we have to help her, you know, and she's constantly re-exposing. And then the BiPAP is blowing all this COVID air all over all of us. And it, it, it does become... A moment where you think to yourself, like, kind of, why are we doing this? But also, then you have that flashback of all the vented COVID patients that you couldn't get off the vent. So, what do you do? You know, it's like there's no good solution to it because you know that this patient is not tolerating this situation. You know,
1: right? Yeah, I think that that's a really good point. And that kind of patient is maybe a little bit more clear cut, even. Um, because they're encephalopathic and they're, you know that doesn't seem like a safe situation for them or for you. Right. Um, the challenge is when you have somebody that you think kind of looks okay, they're on BiPAP or CPAP, they're on some sort of fio two above 60% and their tidal volumes are kind of high and you're just like, I don't know if I'm helping or hurting this person. Um, a lot of the time, I think people are uh, under the impression that not being intubated is good and being intubated is bad. But delaying what would be potentially a necessary intubation is certainly not a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so then we just have to kind of talk about as a community how we're, we're going to identify those patients and, and how we're going to treat them differently.
0: Yeah, definitely. We need a plan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So tell me about your personal style, your strategy for COVID patients.
1: Sure. Um, For the most part, uh, there's a couple. uh, I think the things that are most important to keep in mind when deciding whether to escalate to invasive ventilation or not involve uh, the degree of hypoxemia uh, in concert with a couple of other things. One would be what kind of tidal volumes are they taking themselves. The other thing is, what's the trajectory of the illness? Like, is this somebody that went from six liters to 100% high flow in two hours? Because that's a very different patient than somebody that's kind of has a slow burn from six liters all the way up to 90% over eight days or something. And then the other criteria that needs to be kept in mind is, are there any other organ failures? Do they have shock? Do they have acute kidney injury? Um, Things like that. Um, And the reason that I bring all those to the forefront is because those are all things that have been associated with failure of non-invasive respiratory support in the past. So my particular practice, if somebody gets sick enough uh, from a hypoxemia standpoint with COVID ARDS or non-COVID ARDS to require non-invasive ventilation, you put them on non-invasive ventilation, they don't instantly improve, you know, like within within the next couple hours. Uh, That's somebody that I move to invasive ventilation. And there's a couple reasons for that. Number one, Observational data we have suggests that people who have a PaO2 to FiO2 ratio less than 150 are more likely to either uh, fail non-invasive or to die um, with use of Mm non-invasive. I don't think non-invasive necessarily kills people, but if you're sick enough that you meet those criteria, it's probably not the right device for you. Mm -hmm. The second thing is if somebody's tight, you have to watch the tidal volumes just like you would on the ventilator um and in that case non-invasive ventilation failure is more likely if your tidal volume uh, that's measured by the by the non-invasive device is greater than nine and a half ccs per kg of their ideal body weight so greater than you could just say 10 or greater uh, to mm-hmm. keep things simple and that kind of makes sense I mean you would never permit those kind of things on the ventilator uh, in terms of the tidal volumes that, that people take um, because we know that this is associated with worse outcomes with the higher tidal volumes so with that in mind if I have somebody that escalates to non-invasive and doesn't Perk up in you know an hour or two. I'm really starting to think about it. And the reason that my timing is that tight is because that is somebody that I think is still probably in a window where I can easily manage them on the ventilator in terms of um, them responding to PEEP, in terms of them responding to prone positioning, um, and and maybe maybe ultimately duration of ventilation. That is the easiest decision for me to make. The harder decision is when you have that patient that's been on high flow nasal cannula. And they started the week and they're on 60%. By the end of the week, they're on 90%. I don't know when was the right time to to intubate that patient. But obviously, you're running out of a window where it's going to be safe to do so. Because what will inevitably happen is their work of breathing is increasing over that time. But it's kind of happening gradually. So people really aren't paying attention to it. And mm-hmm. then all of a sudden you get called to the, you know, you or the respiratory therapist or one of my, one of the other members of the team calls me to the bedside because the patient's sat, saturations are 84%. And now they have a high flow on at 100% and they have a non-rebreather over it. And that's the situation that you're intubating that patient in. That's probably too late Um, that, you know, you have that person kind of on quote unquote, 200% oxygen, you're giving them all the oxygen in the hospital and they're still not doing well. Um, And by that point, they definitely have increased worker breathing. They're probably causing themselves lung injury at that point, but it's a little hard to tell because we don't really have hard data on that. There is a group of uh, people out in the research and clinical community who think there is a such thing called uh, patient self-inflicted lung injury. And leaving somebody with prolonged time on high flow or on non invasive with really high tidal volumes might lead to this. That's really speculative at this point, but it's something to keep in mind when we're trying to decide how we're going to time it.
0: Those patients with a slow burn, like you described it, those are the difficult ones for me. They are so hard. And like I said, I mean, for me, I just constantly have this optimism, like, no, we don't have to intubate. It'll be okay. They seem okay. You know, just give them a little Ativan or something. They're just uncomfortable like don't do it and then now i'm finding the reason why what you posted spoke to me is because i was that person like don't intubate don't intubate it, we're killing people you know <laughs> and now i'm finding that a lot of these patients they get intubated anyway and it, it's a lot harder on them too um and and i don't want to say all of them obviously right but the these specific patients that we're talking about it is so much harder harder on them. And it's harder on the staff too. It's harder. You have to constantly go in and out, in and out, in and out, and you're re-exposing yourself to COVID. And then ultimately this person gets intubated anyway. So it's, it's a tough situation.
1: Absolutely. I struggle with that too. I, I always feel whether it has to do with giving somebody another day before they're intubated or giving somebody a day, an extra day after, you know, of being extubated, less days on the ventilator in a lot of ways is always a good thing, less sedation, less immobility, uh, less likelihood for secondary infections and things like that. So the appeal uh, is is understandable. Um, and it's not like these patients are easy to ventilate anyway. I mean, mm-hmm. they're, they have high sedation requirements and they take a long time to improve like like we were talking about. So I think I understand the the tendency to, to wanna try to wait. And in some cases it's probably appropriate. The information we don't have yet is what percentage of patients who require, you know, let's say greater than 70 or 80% high flow for days and stay on it, how many of those patients recover without requiring intubation? I know there's some, I just don't know how many, I don't know if it's 10 or 50%, but I think it's probably somewhere around a third, just anecdotally speaking. Mm -hmm. So those patients, I would love to never put them on a ventilator if they don't need it, but I, it's really hard to predict who's going to be, who's that, who's going to be that patient. And then finally, the other question I have is if you get to the point where it's day 14, they've been on and off high non-invasive to high flow. And then you finally say, okay, we have to throw on the towel and and intubate them. I've had, I can't, I'm not sure I can remember one of those patients coming off the ventilator again. Right. Now that speaks to their severity of illness. It doesn't, Mm -hmm. you know, but, but it makes you wonder then is that somebody, you know, especially if they have other issues frailty comorbidities advancing age things that may make them poor candidates for invasive ventilation in the first place maybe you say this is a you know talk talk you know seriously about the family about recommending maybe considering do not intubate status on in that patient um, because usually what follows then as you know is it's not just the intubation and it's then new shock new renal failure it's you know it's it's the beginning of a cascade that all started with the lung injury
0: Yeah, that's so true. And a really good point that I never thought of, because unfortunately, like, you know, a lot of these intubations, I mean, we're just doing them quickly, right? It's it's urgent. We have to, we have to do it right now. And we're calling the family frantically to get permission and then we do it and that's it. Um, But yeah, maybe a strategy for some of these patients is like, look, this, this is the type of patient that we know doesn't do well. And we, we should have a conversation with them preemptively about this, you know? I mean, I mean, that's a that's a really good point. Um, let me ask you a question. You personally, if it's you, if it's your family member, and you're this patient, are you going to go for the intubation? What do you think?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. If somebody tries to put me on BIPAP, I'm just going to ask for an endotracheal tube. That's yeah, that's the first thing. The second thing is the high flow part. That's really difficult. Me as an intensivist who can kind of try to think about all of what's going on with me. I, pay attention to my worker breathing, my IO2 requirement, I would probably, um, I'm not sure where the threshold would be, but I think once I started to really feel it from a worker breathing standpoint, uh, that's when I would probably draw the line and and ask to be intubated. Now that being said, uh, worker breathing, I want to disentangle worker breathing from respiratory rate because a lot of these patients will have an elevated respiratory rate. And the reason for that is they have a decreased amount of uh, lung volume that's available to participate in gas exchange so if they have a couple of liters of uh, you know, functional residual capacity, but now it's cut down by 60%, they're going to kind of pant. They're going to take you know, small, shallow breaths, but they'll take it more frequently because they have to maintain the same minute ventilation in order to keep their CO2, the PA CO2 kind of balanced. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so tachypnea in and of itself doesn't really bother me. But to with elevated work of breathing, by which I mean uh, activation of accessory muscles, particularly like the sternocleidomastoid muscle, which you can actually put your finger on and feel it, and you can feel it activating. That that's ind- indicative of elevated work of breathing. Or if you see their trachea moving a lot when they're breathing, uh, or of course the intercostal muscles. If, if there's somebody that has a body habitus that can permit that kind of evaluation, those kind of patients, I think they're they're probably doing themselves harm by by being unassisted. So I think if I if I was in that situation, I'd, I'd probably be sitting there like watching TV, but with my <laughs> finger on my sternocleidomastoid. So I'd be like, okay, it's time, <laughs> it's time to go. Um, and, and then I'd be like, yeah, it's time to go and please prone me, uh, pretty quickly. Unless, yeah. yeah. So,
0: like now. Yeah. yeah. Right.
1: Like, like don't, 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 don't waste too much time.
0: Yeah. Uh, the,
1: the two things that I know that are helpful for ARDS really are low tidal volume ventilation with a low driving pressure and proning and everything else is just kind of window dressing. So, um, I think if I was in that situation where my worker breathing was, was really elevated, that's where I would think about it. Um, another thing to consider when you're evaluating these patients, and this is something that any but any provider can do at the bedside, is to, um, so for somebody that's on high-flow nasal cannula, to consider the uh, what's called the ROX index. I don't know if that's something that you've you've heard of. Um, this is something that was validated in non-COVID hypoxemic respiratory failure to try to um, predict who is going to um, go on to require intubation. So the ROX index is the pulse ox divided by the FiO2, and that number. Divided by the respiratory rate, and there are different cutoffs at different points of time to tell you what's a what's a good number. So, if you think about the components of that, the 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 pulse ox divided by the FiO two divided by the respiratory rate. So, a higher number is better in this case because that means you have you know your your pulse ox is better compared to your FiO two is which is compared to your respiratory rate. So the the initial number is four point eight eight, which is not an easy number to remember, but it's just that's what the study showed that that demonstrated it.
0: <laughs> you but just the, have to memorize it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: you just have to remember these things. There's a nice uh, review paper about high flow nasal oxygen, which I can uh, I'll, I'll share with you after if you want to put it in the show notes. Definitely. Like yeah. Because the the value changes over time, but if you're like a bedside provider and you're just trying to get an idea what direction the patient's going in, this is probably a reasonable place to start is to calculate this index and say, okay, they were five, you know, two hours ago, but now they're only two and you know things are going poorly and maybe we should think about intubating them sooner rather than later. So those kind of indices are helpful. They don't really tell you that much above what you already know. Wow, this patient's on 90% and they're only satting 87 and the respiratory rate's 34. That's probably a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's one of those things or at least makes it objective so we can speak the same language. Um, so if my ROCs index is really going down the toilet and my worker breathing is elevated, you can intubate me. And again, if you try to put me on BiPAP, I'm just going to ask for that. Yeah, I'm going to tell you, you can do it to pre-oxygenate me, to intubate me.
0: I guess I feel like now I have a new guideline for myself in case they ever ask me (laughs) to sign the consent. Um, Okay, so let me ask you, here's something I'm confused about. Mm -hmm. Um, We have patients, okay, okay. This is kind of a complicated question. So in the beginning in the spring, we were told that there's probably these different phenotypes, the L and the H phenotype, and but the, the patient could be the L and then they progress to the H and you don't want them to do that. And that's what we're doing to prevent that, et cetera. Um, and, and that's why we have patients that are responding to early proning and ARDS protocol and then some who don't because they have the H phenotype. What happened with that? I haven't heard anything about the phenotype thing. What's going on? Great
1: question. So the person who first put that forward uh, is uh, named Luciano Gattinone, and he is like G- a Gattinone.
0: god. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> He's
1: like, he is like a god in critical care research. So um, his first uh, proposal of that idea was based on an analysis of 16 patients. Now, if I tried to publish something with 16 patients in it, they would never take it in any journal. But, you know, if you have a fancy name, then people take it. So I think it was an early presupposition that was probably based on inadequate evidence. Now that said, there is some truth to it, but I don't think there is, I don't think it's novel to COVID because anybody that has uh, the L type or low elastance, so elastance is the inverse of compliance. So high elastance means low compliance. Uh, and I'm going to have a blog post coming out about this on Monday on critical care now. So I can, that'll talk more about elastance there, but, um, elastance is the inverse of compliance. So high elastance is bad. Low elastance is good. It kind of makes sense that if you're progressing through your, your ARDS respiratory failure, your lungs are becoming less compliant. So that evolution will happen over time. The question that he was proposing was, is this something that is, uh, modifiable, You know, is there something we can do in terms of management that will make a difference? Like, can we just leave all the L types extubated and and unassisted breathing? And although the H types need to get ahead of the game and and then what can we do to mitigate progression with all the fancy meds that we used to use that we realized don't do anything that's helpful. (laughs) So uh, except for steroids, right? Um, And maybe Mm -hmm. remdesivir if you're a believer. Um, So uh, with that in mind, um, I think that progression exists, but I don't think it's something that was necessarily as novel to COVID. A lot of the things that were supposed to be novel to COVID ended up not really being that novel. It was just a matter of people seeing ARDS in, uh, in a frequency in which they had never seen it before. Mm-hmm. Even for us, we're a high-volume ARDS referral center, and we we still have a much higher percentage of ARDS patients than we're used to. So imagine a community hospital going from having one or two a month to having, you know, 10 a day. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's why things felt so novel and different when really it was just viral ARDS uh, and really high prevalence.
0: Can you walk me through, like, when you are... Let's let's take a floor patient for example. I know you work in the ICU, but let's take a floor patient from the floor from admission from the floor to the ICU to intubation. What's the like respiratory path that that person's going to follow? Like, obviously, they start out on nothing, then they go to nasal cannula, like, and then what are the decisions that you need to um, like upgrade them, basically?
1: Yeah, so a lot of that will depend on the resources and uh, resources available in your hospital, and then how, you know, what kind of thresholds you have to put somebody in the ICU. So, one of the hospitals I work at, there's no step down unit. One hospital I work at has a pretty big step down unit. So, that also will, will modify the path a little bit. Generally speaking, in our system, if you're above six liters nasal cannula, you will be in either a step down or, or in an ICU, depending on the location. And from there, it's really unfortunately, it's really left to clinical judgment what happens from there. So, like I said at the beginning of the pandemic, some people right at six liters, uh, above six liters, they're on eight or nine liters, they're getting intubated. Fortunately, that's not helping. That's not happening anymore. Um, so the the pathway really depends on how fast the patient progresses. If they're a rapidly progressor, rapid progressor, they go from six liters to all of a sudden they're on 100% percent high flow nasal and they're still not maintaining their saturations. That person's probably on the doorstep of being intubated. Um, depending on where you work, somebody might try BiPAP first. Um, so I think that's one pathway. Another pathway is the slow burn patient, and then that's when it becomes really, really difficult to decide how to escalate the, the therapy. But there's no other, aside from clinical judgment, looking at their trajectory of worsening and their work of breathing, there's really no good clinical treatments that are going to really, that I can say will modify the the course. If they were already on oxygen, they're already getting steroids. Um, they're probably getting remdesivir if they don't have an acute kidney injury. And beyond that, I'm just kind of holding steady and, and trying not to do anything to make them worse, maybe giving them some diuretics to, to see if I can get their their fluid balance negative. Um, uh, though I will say it, that's strategy, which I love is not necessarily as uh, effective in COVID uh, ARDS as it seemed to be in another COVID patient or another non-COVID ARDS patients. So that, that decision to escalate therapy and how and when is still really individualized. And, and I hate to say it, but this is the reality is it depending on who's taking care of you that day is going to depend on the type of care you get. And I think that's true in any hospital system anywhere. Um, but because we don't have really clear guidance on what's the quote unquote, right thing to do, um, there's going to be a lot of variability. Now I have seen patients who have sat on, you know, 80, 90% for days, uh, you know, up to a week, and then they kind of turn the corner and come back down and and, and make the improvement. But then mm-hmm. I've had people who every day is like a step worse than the day before. And it's just feels like an inevitability. And it, there's, I so far, can't tell you who, how to predict who's going to be in which group.
0: Right? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the part. That's the part that bothers me at least. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) If I could predict, right. Um, okay. You talked about, um, like diuresing them and I mean, is that, is it just as simple as, I mean, you're taking work away from the lung or is is there more to it? I mean, I I was reading something about right ventricular failure.
1: Yeah. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of potential reasons why diuresis is helpful. Um, a lot of people think about ARDS as kind of fluid in the lungs. It's not really that simple. It's fluid plus protein plus inflammatory material in the alveoli, but anything to sort of decrease that burden uh, is probably helpful. We don't have as much data about it in non-intubated patients, but in intubated patients, there's a study from the early 2000s that suggests that targeting a negative fluid balance amounts to fewer days on the ventilator, which is something that obviously is, is, is a net win, even if it doesn't have any impact on mortality necessarily. Mm-hmm. So that's one impact. One potential impact. The other thing that you mentioned is right ventricular dysfunction is very prevalent in in ARDS, uh, somewhere between twenty and sixty percent, depending on on the particular patient. And the right ventricle does really poorly with a higher preload. Um, so anything to kind of uh, decompress it will allow the systolic function to improve. So that's that's another potential benefit. You're now also having though to weigh that against the risk of acute kidney injury. Diuretics, of course, are not nephrotoxic, but if somebody was actually hypovolemic when they came in, and you stretch them to be more hypovolemic, uh, that can become an issue. Which is then why sort of a really comprehensive assessment of fluid and fluid responsiveness is probably helpful. Um, If it's somebody that you think probably has elevated, you know, right-sided filling pressures like elevated CVP or things like that, um, that's somebody who's more likely to to benefit. But a lot of these patients, as you know, come in; they've been at home. You know, to for three or four days, maybe not eating, not drinking. Uh, they actually may be relatively hypovolemic, and me giving them diuretics is probably not going to help anything. Um, so it's it's helpful to do a little bit more of an assessment whether you're looking, you know, at you know, parameters uh, related to fluid responsiveness or, or fluid or parameters related to fluid overload, like, you know, right atrial pressure being elevated, or if you have a swan wedge being elevated, those kind of things are are probably uh, helpful to pay attention to on the extremes, at least, you know, if somebody has a CVP of zero, that's probably useful information. If they have a CVP of 16, that's probably useful information somewhere in the middle. It's a little bit harder to say um, so, but, but just bear in mind too, that, that, the complicating factor there with the, you know, kidney, acute kidney injury being so common in ARDS and in COVID ARDS, that hypervolemia is just as bad for the kidney as hypovolemia. So trying to find a sweet spot there is really challenging. Um, and, and then just, uh, to add on to this, this, uh, part of the discussion, it's important to remember that ARDS is not just a, a lung disease uh, and, and the inflammatory injury that happens there and the inflammatory mediators, mediators that get released there go throughout the rest of the body. And sometimes that's what causes the acute kidney injury and has nothing to do with their volume status or things like that. So mm-hmm. it's a really complex multi-system disease, even though sometimes it only manifests in the lungs to begin with.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a problem with the public too, right? They see it as a lung disease. It's like the flu, you know, and it's like, no, yeah. so much more going on. It's so complicated. Yeah. Like I, I work with it all the time and I don't fully understand it, you know, like, come on. <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean, I, I don't think a lot of, I mean, none of us fully understand it, but but yeah, realizing how complex and, and multifaceted it is, is, is uh, important for us, at least as the people that are delivering the care. So.
0: Yeah. Respect the virus, you know. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, okay. I want to give you an opportunity. If there's anything you want to bring up or talk about, um, please do at the end of this, I'm going to go over like some kind of nursing interventions. Cause I want it to be like RNMD, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like your interventions and mine. Um, and if you have anything to add to those, like, please chime in.
1: Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So if there's anything else you want to discuss, like go for it.
1: Yeah. So I, I think I want to sort of circle back to the discussion about what to do when somebody has been sitting on on non-invasive support for a while and deciding what to do in terms of intubation or not. I think the thing that we really need to focus on whenever somebody crosses the threshold to the ICU is how far should I take this? Um, what's appropriate for this patient based on their not only their preferences, but also their comorbidities, their frailty, their acute uh, and chronic conditions, both. And I think we need to have that discussion way before we're on a hundred percent high flow and with a non-rebreather over it, because then you're going to get a panicked answer. That's not going to be yeah. somebody, think, somebody thinking in in sort of their, their normal, right mind. So I try to broach this conversation as soon as somebody crosses the threshold of the ICU, even if they're only on eight liters nasal cannula, because you really don't know what direction things are going to go. And this is something where it's, I think, appropriate for it to fall to the APP or to the resident or to the attending or fellow, but also like for the nurse to sort of start to, investigate what some of the patient's preferences are and things like that is is a reasonable place to start. You don't have to have the full counseling conversation with them, but at least to kind of get, get an impression from them. Sometimes I come to the bedside and the nurse uh, will tell me, Oh, this patient, uh, you know, we talked about intubation. This patient said they wouldn't want it no matter what. So then I'll counsel them on it and confirm that's the case. But um, you know, those are kind of things it's, it's okay to start to have those conversations with people because you may spare them for some, from something they wouldn't want in the first place. Um, because we oftentimes assume that by somebody coming to our ICUs that they want everything done, which I still don't really know what that means. It's like one of the most misleading phrases in medicine, but it's really important to clarify these things up front, especially when people have life life limiting comorbidities or they have advanced age. I mean, the outcomes with mechanical ventilation and elderly patients are really abysmal. So Mm -hmm. unless this person is like gung ho to, to, you know, live no matter what, even if it's going to be a huge sacrifice to their quality of life and they still might not make it off the ventilator, then we really probably shouldn't be doing it. And I think this is an opportunity. Um, this pandemic has been an opportunity for us to sort of highlight those kind of things, because you, we know, we know what people are going to go through. They're going to be on an event for maybe two or three weeks. They may develop renal failure, needing dialysis. They may not come back, you know, come back off of any of these supports. And it's important for people to be counseled on them uh, ahead of time. We consult patients uh, to do informed consent for the acute problems. Oh, you know, if I put the central line in you, I may cause a pneumothorax or I may cause, you know, bleeding. Or We don't counsel mm-hmm. people on, if I put you on this breathing machine, I may put you on a path of chronic critical illness. You may be never come back off of it. You may require to be cared for in a long-term acute care hospital. Um, and, and you may never return to your prior functional status. Those are the kind of conversations about consent that we need to have as critical care providers.
0: You're so right. <laughs> You're so right. Yeah. Um, I couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah. Because to me, some of that stuff is so much scarier. I mean, there are things worse than death and we've seen yes. it and I, I wouldn't want that on anybody. And, um, the point that you made about nursing, getting involved too, like you said, I mean, it's not our job to get the consent signed, but, um, we're with the patient and we can ask them their preferences and ask them. Um, I had a, I had a patient a few months ago, um, that had been to a large gathering, you know, against COVID precautions. And actually that patient's spouse was the one who pushed that person to go. The patient did not want to go. They both got it. The spouse was at home and was okay. The patient was in my ICU with me and the night that I had them, they were, angry at the spouse and like on the phone. And I heard the whole conversation and, you know, the whole, the whole situation. And I, you know, I said, are you okay? And this and that. And, um, basically gave me information to say, I don't want my spouse making decisions for me because they don't have the judgment that I would have used. And I want it to be my daughter And, um, we intubated that person that night. And I was the only person that got to have a conversation with that person instead of the people on the phone. And I was able to say that to the doctors, like, listen, this is what's going on. You need to call the daughter, you know? And, um, so I, I think it is very important, you know, sometimes nursing, we shy away from those hard conversations, but it's very important for us to get involved sometimes.
1: Absolutely. And, and you have a level of intimacy that we will not, that uh, the other providers will not necessarily have with the, with the patient, the other clinicians won't necessarily have with the patient. You're in there with them, you know, sometimes hourly or, or at least every couple hours, getting to know them, starting to understand who they are and what kind of things they care about. And then furthermore, once things get really aggressive and invasive, you know what all that means for the, for the care of the patient, Um, even things, you know, people have even reported just simple things like being turned in the ICU is really, really uncomfortable. Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes that causes people a lot of pain. Um, So just understanding even those kind of simple, you know, seemingly simple things uh, that will go on for a patient for not only, you know, 24 hours at a time, but for days or weeks at a time, it's important that people understand what they're going to go through when they, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of sign up for you know, the, the most aggressive pathway. Definitely.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. So, I was going to talk a little bit about some kind of nursing interventions for these patients. We talked about some of the doctor interventions. Um, so, now I'm going to go over these and feel free to chime in at any time with any of this. Okay. So, I got all of this information from Lip and Cot, and I'm going to put it in the show notes for everybody who wants to listen. Um, Okay, we have a lot of we have a lot of issues with covid patients, right? We have activity intolerance, altered skin integrity, anxiety, impaired comfort, impaired ac- gas exchange, infection, malnutrition, and then we also have psychosocial, spiritual needs. Um so real quick for anybody who's activity intolerance. I mean, these patients, especially the ones that we're talking about that are maybe on BiPAP or high flow and they're ripping it off and they, they're about to be intubated. These are the patients that they're exhausted. I mean, just them lifting their head off the pillow, they're panting. They're so exhausted. Um, obviously this patient's gone a little too far, but before you get to that point, there are some things that you can do for the patient. Um, My, my go-to is number one, your assessment, right? You need to go in the room, assess the patient's fatigue, their ability to perform normal tasks. Um, You need to identify small things that might be causing them uh, increased work. Like is their phone charger on the other side of the room? I know it sounds small, but for this kind of patient, some kind of exertion, like just trying to get up and go to the other side of the room to grab something can make them crash. And then now you're intubating somebody. Um, I I like to start off with when I go in the room, I make a little plan with my patients. I say, hey, like, you know, I'm going to pass meds around this time. We usually shut the lights up around this time. I give them a little bit of a plan. It, It gives them control and it also lets them know what to expect. This also gives me an opportunity to set up a plan with them like if they want certain things, um, like say they want their pants changed and they want their bed changed before bed so they can be more comfortable, great. We're gonna, but we're gonna do that when we get you up to go to the commode. We're gonna do all of this together. We're not gonna do separate trips because you're too tired, <laughs> right?
1: And then you have to burn through all your PPE if you're going in there repeatedly. So I like that idea of bundling the care. That really is good.
0: Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Okay. For altered skin integrity for the, especially the prone ICU patients. Oh my God, their ears, their face. Um, We try to use like the waffle pillows. We have those. Um, I, again, I'm, I'm a big fan of assessment. So I always do a really thorough skin assessment. I'm going to put Mepiplex or whatever you use foam dressing on any bony prominence I don't care if it's red or not I just stick them everywhere like whatever the <laughs> the, the the next nurse comes in she's like what my patient's got patches everywhere I'm like yeah their skin looks good too <laughs> Yeah what do you have to lose yeah, <laughs> um, and then also assess them for uh, fecal incontinence. If you need to put, you know, a rectal tube, um, make sure that they're getting some kind of high protein if it's tube feeding or whatever. Um, if it, sometimes the bipap patients, it's very hard because I mean, a COVID patient doesn't want to eat anyway, right? They're so sick, they don't have any taste or smell, and then uh, they get the bipap, so they can't eat or drink anyway. So um, that can be that can be really tough the mattress too, for the skin, make sure that you upgrade your mattress. If you don't like some, some places they just have great mattresses, but sometimes you have to ask for the special bed, ask for the special bed. If it's a prone patient, get, get them a special bed. <laughs> I'm sure that you have experienced these patients that are on non-invasive ventilation or on high flow, and they just have so much anxiety. I mean, how, how do you medically, how are you medically managing them?
1: Generally speaking, if I have somebody that has really, really high, ang- so the first thing I think to, to account for is that remember, primary anxiety is a diagnosis of exclusion. So I have to first determine, is this is this anxiety because they're about to crash, um, because their gas exchange is inadequate, something like that. If I've determined that those that issue is not the issue, then primarily treating uh, anxiety in the ICU, I think the two safest pathways would be sort of moderate doses of, uh, as needed antipsychotics or, um, I think would be another reasonable choice, especially in somebody, again, I don't do a lot of non-invasive with, uh, ARDS patients. So I do almost, almost 0%. Um, hmm. but I think for a non-invasive tolerance in general, it's accept and it's an accepted and reasonable practice to put somebody on, uh, to facilitate them tolerating it. So I think that's a nice choice. Um, it's titratable, you turn it on and off, you know, and it does, doesn't cost you anything in terms of respiratory drive. And the same is really true for antipsychotics. So I think if you need it uh, uh, sort of on, uh, on an as-needed basis, that's a reasonable way to go. I really don't use benzodiazepines for that purpose just because I'm not, I'm not so concerned about the respiratory drive component. I mean, you'd have to give them a pretty solid dose to knock down, a, you know, COVID patient's uh, respiratory drive. But I'm more concerned about the development of delirium or, you know, worsening symptoms like that. So that's why I stick mm-hmm. to those other two kind of medications. If they can't be, if, if more conservative measures like, you know, reassurance and things like that are not going to cut it, then I think that's the next step. Uh, it used to be, we used, um, you know, having families around was something that was helpful for this, but unfortunately because of restrictions, um, that's not something that's possible right now.
0: Right. Yeah, definitely yeah, so um, so nursing, I guess, you know, assess your patient for signs and symptoms of anxiety, uh, and then ask Dr. Matt for some meds and then <laughs> and then monitor for you know the effect and see if it it's helping or it's snowing them or it's not enough or whatever. And, you know, a lot of these patients, it goes either one way or the other way for me. Either I go in the room and I can spend some extra time TLC with the patient because they're in there, they're scared, they're alone, they don't know what's going on. The only thing they turn on the news, it's COVID, how many COVID patients have died, they're in there with it. Um, either I spend that time with them and and they actually feel better and I'm like, great, I did great. You know, and I feel really good about that or it does nothing and there's nothing I can say or do. And they just are so anxious. And, and then for me, my experience is those are the patients that eventually crash. Like they just, you know, do terribly. Um, so for impaired gas exchange, um, it's going to be the same as like anybody with pneumonia, you know, um, we're going to do, we're going to assist them with their uh, activities of daily living. We're going to auscultate their breath sounds, monitor their respiratory rate, depth, effort every hour. If you're in the ICU or every four hours, I guess if you're on the floor, um, call the respiratory therapist as needed. Perform suctioning and and monitor. One one thing I see new nurses do sometimes is they will suction the patient. They're like, "Great, I suctioned the patient." They walk away. Wait a second. wait a second look at the patient see did it do anything did i get it all how you know did the patient respond like take take a good look at them for a second and um see see if the if the rate if the depth if it changed after you did that like we were just talking about cluster your care so that the patient actually has time to rest and to you know store some energy so they can actually breathe Um, and if it's somebody who's on nasal cannula or high flow, you can teach them how to cough and deep breathe, use the incentive spirometer, um, and encourage them to do it hourly. And, and even, I know we're trying to preserve PPE and we're trying not to expose ourselves hourly. I'll just bang on the glass and be like, and do a little motion. Like, are you doing it? You know? And they're like, oh, and I'm like, I know, but do it. And then obviously things like monitoring ABGs and vent settings and you know meds et cetera. Um, are you guys doing nebulizers?
1: Uh, we had not been for a while. Um, I think the practice is still mainly not to, except if it's a vented patient. The good thing about this pandemic in terms of nebulizer or or let's say bronchodilator use is, I think we probably cut down on a lot of unnecessary use of bronchodilators Mm -hmm. there are some clinicians who put everybody that has ever coughed in their life on albuterol which i don't quite understand um so it's cut down at least on those kind of behaviors but for people who actually need it via the vent i believe we're still doing nebulizers and then doing uh uh, like HFA type inhalers for, uh, for patients who are not, who are unassisted.
0: We are something similar. We were doing NEBS for high flow patients and then they stopped that. And then they said only vented patients. And then I think recently they came back and said, oh, we can do it for BiPAP patients too. Um, that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah. I guess at that point, like in the beginning, we were so worried about it being sprayed in the air. But like at this point, I just assume it's in the air when I go in any room anyway. Like I have my gear on. So, you know.
1: Yeah, better safe than sorry.
0: Yeah. Um Okay, and then also with the a lot of the patients, even though this has been in the news for a year and we've been dealing with a pandemic, there's still a knowledge deficit with a, with a lot of this stuff. And um, I know personally, I mean, I've had a patient's family member ask me, can't you just take the breathing tube out for a second so I can talk to my mom and put it back? you know? Um, so I mean this is, we are dealing with it constantly all the time. And so we get a little jaded into like, isn't this everyone else's reality? But like, we also have to remember that, you know, to a, most of these families, the only experience they've had with COVID is on the news, you know, um, so it, it can be kind of sad.
1: Yeah, I th- I think um, something that is really unique in a helpful way, it's, it's, it's tragic, certainly, but in a, in a helpful way as well is that, people really weren't acquainted with critical care at all. I think that, you know, the broader public wasn't really acquainted with it, what it means, what we do. Um, I know that up until probably April or May, I don't think my dad knew what my job was. Um, So, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's pretty common that for people to not to understand what critical care is and what to expect. So I think it's good that the public is at least understanding what critical care, nursing, what intensivists are, Um, they're, you know, also learning about what infectious disease doctors are, you know, there's like a lot of, uh, sort of on the go education that people are picking up just because this became such a big issue. I mean, remember back in April, talk about ventilators was all over the news. And I don't think that was probably never happened before. It was like, what is a ventilator? Are they good or bad? How many do we have? Do we have enough? You know, things that would have never come to the general public's uh, attention before. So that's kind of good, at least to get people to realize what could happen and then yeah we but we, we still have to fill in the gaps for them because they won't uh then that that'll always be the case we'll always have to help them understand what we're doing why we're doing it and what our treatments can really achieve you know none of this stuff a ventilator has never cured anybody of anything it's just a supportive device in mm-hmm. order to give somebody time to heal up and that's a conversation i have you know it's 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 very humbling that like probably 80 90 of critical care is just support or just waiting for the patient to hopefully improve what the other things we're doing for them.
0: That can be, um, depending on your unit or your month, it can be sort of discouraging too, yeah. right? Yeah. If you have a group that just does terribly, you're like, what am I doing here? You know, it's crazy. Yeah.
1: Morale has been uniquely challenged, I think, during this pandemic for so many reasons, the public health response, the lack of response from the federal government, and then just also just us being inundated with us day in and day out it's a really important time to remember to pay attention to the process of care that you're giving rather than the outcomes. Because if you're consistently doing the right things for patients on the whole, you'll be doing better for the population, for everyone. Um, But if you get fixated on, oh, you know, we had, you know, a bad week, a bad month, a bad experience with this patient, but you feel like you did everything that you could have done for them uh, in the right way, in an evidence-based way, then, you know, you, you you have to still feel good about the efforts that you made.
0: That's such a good point. Um, I, I think about it in a similar way. Like even I used to work hospice care and I, I apply this to the ICU now too is, um, you know, I mean, a hospice, nobody makes it. That's kind of the nature of it. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, so how do you deal with that, you know, as a clinician and the way, the word that I just try to keep like it's like a mantra almost to myself is dignity. Like I want to provide the patient dignity. If I do that, I don't care really what happens as long as I do the best I can to medically treat them appropriately. And I'm giving them dignity in their last days. They're clean, they're dry, they're comfortable. I've turned them, you know, it, it, even something as simple as like I brush their hair and like put it in a braid or something, that stuff, it, it, maybe the patient doesn't know, maybe the family uh, now during COVID, they don't know, but I know, you know, and that makes me feel like, okay, I actually am doing something with my life, you know? <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely. I th- That's a great point. And whenever I offer transition to comfort care to any families, I always the two words that I always emphasize are comfort and dignity. So I think if we can, even even if this, we're transitioning a, a good amount of these patients to comfort care, if we can maintain those two things, we can still give them dignified death that's comfortable. That's something that we would accept for ourselves or our family members. So those things are really important. As an aside, I'll say I have an irrational joy whenever I see that somebody washed and combed a patient's hair. So I really appreciate that you do that. I don't know why it really makes me happy when I see that. <laughs>
0: It makes me happy too. Cause I'm like, if that was my grandma, you know, like you don't want to go in there and somebody has got a greasy face and their hair is all mm-hmm. matted. And um, I actually read a story where um, it was a young girl and I forget what she had, but she was in the ICU for weeks and she was intubated and she made it out eventually. And she told a story about how she said the nurses saved her hair. She had this long, beautiful hair and they had braided it for her. And I think she was in health care. So she like understood that she could have lost her hair. And she, it was like, it, it was almost more important to her in a way than her life being saved. It was like the idea that they took the time to do that, you know, and I, I just think that's so beautiful.
1: Absolutely. We have to maintain that, that there's a patient behind, behind all the tubes and lines and diagnoses and things like that. And something that seems simple like that, uh, that might be part of that person's identity. So it's really important to try to maintain that for them.
0: Absolutely. Oh my gosh. It's such a pleasure to always talk to you. You're so knowledgeable. I always learn so much when we talk. We should do this more often. Seriously. Yeah, we'll have like little medical topics because I have like these... I have RNMD conversations. I have social topics. We have all this stuff going on. And then, but then like once in a while, I'm like, I want to learn something. Like I'm going to call you when that happens.
1: (laughs) That sounds good to me.
0: Yeah. Um, Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This was great. Is there anything you want to, Oh, why don't you plug your critical care stuff?
1: Sure. So, um, we have a, there's a, you know, 30 or so of us who uh, are operating an educational website called criticalcarenow.com, I'm one of the senior editors for that. Um, we cover everything from trauma to pharmacy topics. My particular area is uh, the airway and ventilator uh, section. so those, that's kind of uh, my, one of my specific areas of interest. I'm also interested in everything about everything, everything and anything circulatory shock. Um, but we have a new po- at least one new post every single day on criticalcarenow.com. So you can go to the website and see that, or if you want to follow, uh, the editor in chief is Haney Malamet, who is at critical care uh, at critical now on every platform. Um, so follow us and we'll, we'll give you some education every day. Most of our posts are really short. You can read them in less than five minutes or there'll be a short video stuff that's very easy to digest. And take away with, but there's still like expert level content there for people who are um, sort of higher level and looking to sort of level up the way that they provide care. We are working on developing a nursing specific uh, area for that, uh, for the website. So that should be coming soon, but it's not quite ready for primetime yet, but we already have like a respiratory therapy section in addition to our ventilator and airway section. So we're looking on growing to being a true critical care community and not just like about intensivists, so I think there's a lot uh, for everybody to learn from on the site.
0: That's great. Um I actually I love that website. I've I've seen it. I've been on it and it's cool for me because um, like you're saying, like you don't have to be necessarily an ICU attending, right. And, but I can go onto your page and I can read about like what kinds of topics you're thinking about and writing about. So I, I really appreciate that you guys are doing that. It takes a lot of effort from a lot of people. Um, but like the more information for all of us, it's for the greater good. So I applaud you guys. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Thanks a lot. It was really fun to talk to you again.
0: All right. Bye. Take care. Okay. Bye. Thank you guys so much for listening to the show. We really appreciate it. If you have any questions or comments, any topics you'd like to submit, please send them to rnmdpodcast at gmail.com. You can also send them to our Instagram account, which is rnmdpodcast or my personal Instagram account is the nocturnal nurse. Um, If you like the show, please like, please subscribe. We need the love right now. We're just getting started. Also, if you have any suggestions um, of how we can make this better, this is for you guys. And uh, we'll see you again next week. Bye-bye.